This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. I'm very excited and honored with my guest today. Please welcome Noah Galloway. Noah, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Tina. Can you let us know a little bit about growing up? And I know there's a cape involved. (laughs) Yeah, growing up, I'm the only boy with three sisters. And growing up, I, you know, one, I was being the only boy, I was babied by everybody. But also, I thought I was the defender for all my sisters. And I did. I lived off that mantra of like Superman, just everything about it. I, when I was little, I ran around with a towel clipped to me. It all revolved around wanting to be this protector. Now, when it came to joining the military, but first, let's back up. I've just remembered this because this will turn out to be ironic later on. Your dad was missing an arm. Yes. My dad, when he was a teenager, worked in a plant, a machine malfunction, squished his left hand. He's below the elbow, but they tried to save it. They couldn't. They amputated it. My entire life, he's done construction with one hand. He's taught me how to roof houses, do room additions, plumbing, all with one hand. That was already in my life. Growing up, I had this father that had one hand and did not ever let it slow him down. He never used that hand as an excuse to not be able to do things. He found a way around it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. You joined the military, but before that, September 11th, 2001. I find this as a recurring theme for so many of you that I have spoken with. What was it about September 11th that inspired you to join the military? No surprise that so many people you talk to that have had a similar, not just reaction, but what we did, because there was, there were so many men and women that joined the military after 9-11. I was in college, and when I watched all that happen on the news, it terrified me. It, it worried me. I didn't know. I decided, you know what, I'm going to go in the military. And I have an uncle that's a Vietnam veteran. They always told me, if you go in, go airborne infantry. So you're right up front. And that's what I did. And ended up with the 101st out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky under General Petraeus. Yeah, I was in the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003. I respected the military. I have a lot of mili- family that's in the military or served in the military. But I never saw myself going in. Of course, there also, there wasn't a war going on right then. So then when 9-11 happened, I was like, I have to go. Once I got in, I fell in love with it. You mentioned college, but you dropped out of school in ninth grade. Is that correct? I did. Four years after being out of school, I had worked full time, had my own place, was living on my own before I was 17. And then I considered the military. I wanted to be a fireman, and I thought, you know what, I'll go in the military and let them pay for it, and I went to an Air Force recruiter. He said, first of all, you need to get your GED, and we, the Air Force and the Navy, do not accept GEDs, but the Army and Marines will, so I went to get my GED, and I scored real well on it, (laughs) and when I came back to get my results, these little old women sat me down and were like, why did you take the test? The GED, I said to join the military. And they're like, we think you should go to college. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. So then I ended up going to college because uh, that's what, uh, you know, I, it seems like back then everyone said, you know, you're supposed to either go in the military or go to college. And so I was like, well, go to college. And that first semester is when 9-11 happened. And, I, and before you even ask it, in case you were wondering, people always ask me what I was would have done with my life if I hadn't joined the military. Chances are I probably would have dropped out. Thankfully, when I dropped out this time, I joined the military and it was the best move I ever made. At that age, I had no direction. When I got in the military, when I say I fell in love with it, that structure, that design, everything fit me to a T. 
So it was perfect. Was there ever a dilemma in choosing between the Marines and the Army? Well, no, because the Marines have better commercials. So I went to a Marine recruiter and I told him I wanted airborne infantry. And he says, you'll go through basic training and they'll put you where they want you. And I was like, I'm not, I don't know. And I tell people that to this day, I was like, if you have a recruiter say you can change your job down the road, no, you're signing a contract. You tell that recruiter what you want. If they can't offer it, they may not be able to offer it, walk away. Oh, there's all those other branches of the military you can join. But no, I walked out and then I went to the army recruiter, said I want an airborne infantry. And they said, come on in. I have a lot of respect for all the branches. The Marines are smaller. They're not as old as the army. The army is older. It's bigger. And it's broke down by units. I am glad where I ended up because I ended up the 101st. And I'm real proud of that unit that I was part of. You had two deployments, correct? I was in the invasion in 03 and then went back in 2005. And that was the deployment that I was injured on. May I read something from your book? Yes. Okay. You'll have to excuse me. I need to lower my glasses because I can't see close. (laughs) (laughs) It's what happens with age. No, it is what it is. (laughs) But I found this really interesting. If I can read a couple of passages here. We were in the city of Mosul to maintain order while the new police force was being established. The marketplace was a struggle. There was no order and it was difficult to walk through because the vendors all placed their carts wherever they pleased. They pulled their carts out in front of one another and onto the street. We were constantly correcting them and this was a time where the anger came out in an inappropriate way. If we told one of these guys to move his cart and he didn't or he moved it back out into the street, we'd lose it. We destroyed the cart. We were smashing cantaloupes all over the street. The guy at the next cart would see that and so he'd pull his cart back halfway so we'd wreck that cart too. We felt that we were being disrespected by the locals and every day we were looking out for trouble. We were looking for someone to slip up and give us a reason to beat him up or destroy his cart. I had gotten good at a new thuggish habit. One day I stepped out in front of a little Toyota truck and it hit me. This is kind of amazing to me. I rolled onto my back, rolled over and landed just by the driver's side door. The man driving said pleadingly, sorry, mister, sorry, sorry but without hesitation, I'm sure this is not one of your proudest moments. I slammed my fist into his face. I hit him. His head wrap fell forward into his lap and he was bleeding. And then one other part. And in that moment, that is how I felt completely dominant. As I stood on that rooftop, unprotected and not giving a shit, I looked out over the town and said to myself, but as if I were talking to all of them, work with me or against me. I can either destroy you or I can help you. I believed every word of it. Nothing could touch me. No one could hurt me. I was completely invisible. One of the people that I spoke with, uh, his name is Carmela Rodriguez, talked about the GI Joe complex. Do you feel like that was an issue going on for you? Oh yeah, so like that first part, I uh, was in Mosul. That was my first deployment. And when I hit the guy, the worst part about it wasn't what made me realize what was happening was his small son in the passenger seat. You know how you have those moments where a lot of information just flows through you real quick? Like in a blink of an eye, I thought of how it would have felt to be a child and see your father disrespected and there's nothing you can do about it or to be a father and have something like that happen in front of your child and you can't do anything about it because what I did I rolled over that car perfectly and landed and I'd gotten good at but it was not appropriate nothing about that should have been happening when we invaded it was kill 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 then they should have pulled us out and had another unit trained ready to move in and then trained us to come back to deal with locals because you can't be aggressive and work with the locals. It doesn't work that way because all you're doing is creating more enemies. I would not be surprised to know that that little boy grew up hating America, hating Americans. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? And so things like that were poison inside of us and you start to realize it. You hope you do. 
But then there is that moment, like, like that next part where I was staying on the roof. It was my second deployment. And you do, you feel, I, GI Joe complex is great. And another way I've said it, and I've had other guys mention it is it's like, you're in a movie and you have main characters, you know, and how things are supposed to go. And, you know, you might lose some, there is this moment of feeling like there's nobody that can touch you. And, you know, it is, it's like, it's a, a powerful moment to have. It's a very masculine energy to feed off of, which has its good and its bad. What I appreciated about your book, well, one of the many things that I hadn't heard before, it reminded me a great deal of Vietnam, is when you're talking about the potato warehouse and the morale there. I can't remember who it was, one of the people in charge that would walk around, not even in a uniform, not caring. Broken. That's the kind of stuff that you hear about Vietnam. I have not heard that with, the, I mean, I know that morale can be low, but this is the lowest that I have heard morale being after speaking with so many people. Going back since then, I've been able to trace back less than 1% of the military lived like we did, completely remote and with the locals. When I got injured, I don't remember if I mentioned this in the book or not, but the guys that called for help on the radio, they're like, we got nobody. We can't send anyone to get you because we are maxed out. That was my company could not come and help me. And thankfully a convoy overheard it and were able to pick me up. We were maxed out and living with the locals. I personally wouldn't want to live any other way, but because of that deployment and the way that the bad leadership and everything that rolled down, yeah, every people had given up. And I made the mistake of saying one time to somebody when they said, what are we doing? I said, we're just waiting on our turn to die. And one, I never should have said that to someone else, but that's how it felt. Kind of had that moment of, yeah, not knowing. But then at the same time, you kind of just give up and don't care. And yeah, there were guys that took that to the extreme. It's really tough. You even talk about when you get there, how much it reaped. Oh, it was horrible. No, the people that were living there before us, there was a, a, a National Guard unit that was there and just sitting. They had bottles of urine, rotten food, because they wouldn't leave. They wouldn't leave. It was a dangerous area. The, a, a Marine unit was there and took a beating. And so they brought in more Marines and controlled the area. Well, then they put in a unit. They thought, well, we've got the area under control. Well, then they put a National Guard unit in there. And once they something would go off, they're like, that's it. And they just sat for a few months. And that gave the rest of the town the ability to rig up whatever they wanted. One of your things, too, is that National Guard was not qualified to be there, correct? Yes. And that now and someone's going to hear this and think, well, that's no, I'm not attacking the National Guard at all. Buddies of mine that have gone from active duty to National Guard, they said there's a huge difference in the way things work. These are men and women that have full time jobs. And then one week in a month, they come and do their thing. And that two weeks out of the year. But I've been told, they're like, hey, you tell a private to do something in the military and they do it. In the National Guard, you got to spend another hour arguing why they have to do it. You know, there's a difference. And there's no disrespect. The National Guard is here for our national security. That is our states that run it. And they never should have deployed to Iraq. When they first started deploying them, that was for the surge that we were doing. And they were just sitting at camps just so there were numbers, a PR move to try to look like we had more people over there, overlooking the fact that we were paying off everyone cash that disappeared. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But it's nothing against the National Guard, but no one joins the National Guard saying, I hope I go to combat. That doesn't happen. You want to go to combat, you go active duty, you go into a unit that is going to deploy. You are very upfront about the things that you could have done better, the things that you failed in, something that you really struggled with was that you let your career in the military become more important than some of your relationships. Your military career was first. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. It, once I got in the military, like I fell in love with it. And, I, and that's the biggest thing I dealt with with my recovery wasn't the physical side, losing an arm and a leg. I mean, I'm not going, don't get me wrong, it sucked, but <laughs> it wasn't what sent me into depression. Being a kid with no direction suddenly found a career. 
I mean, this kid who everyone that knew me that ever went to school with me, I'm sure my family too was like, let's just hope he never goes to prison. You know what I mean? Like no one knew where I was going in life. And then I ended up in the military and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I woke up one day and it was done. I struggled with that for a long time. And no, when I was in, yeah, I was married. That took a backseat to everything. What happened on the day of your traumatic injury? So it was December 19th of 2005. And like I mentioned earlier, when I got injured, we were maxed out. We didn't have a lot of people. We had our platoon of about 30 guys where half the platoon did one mission and half of us did another. And the group I was with, we finished first. We headed back to the potato factory. I laid down to get some sleep. Just as I dozed off, my platoon leader, Lieutenant Jerry Edson, woke me up and said, hey, we're taking the Humvees to go pick up the rest of the platoon. Nothing important, just going to get them and coming back. And I was like, nope, you go, I go. So I insisted on going and driving the lead vehicle. And we took off about one, two o'clock in the morning. And in 2005, you drove with your headlights off, night vision goggles on. And with night vision goggles, you can see well, but you can't see everything. And one thing I didn't see that night was a tripwire stretched across the road. And when my front tires hit it, it detonated this roadside bomb that it hit my door, the driver's side door, and threw this 9,000-pound armored Humvee flying through the air and landing in a canal running adjacent to the road. I don't remember any of it. Thankfully, it landed wheels down. My arm was already taken off. My jaw was shattered. Both my legs were injured. The water was up to my chest. They struggled to get me out of the vehicle, up the embankment, to the potato factory. Helicopter picked me up there, took me to a camp in Baghdad, Baghdad to Germany, Germany to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. And I got there six days later on Christmas Day. What's impressive about the wars that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan is in Vietnam, for every one soldier killed, seven survived. And around 2005, 2006, for every one soldier killed, 27 survived. That survival rate had a lot to do with body armor, self-care, medics, and then also how quickly they can get you from combat to the States within 24 to 48 hours. And it took me six days. Like they called my parents were going to keep me on life support till they got to Germany. And then I started doing better and they got me out of there. So I don't remember any of it. I woke up and it was all news to me that I'd lost my left arm above the elbow, my left leg above the knee. I had injuries to my right hand. My jaw was shattered. So my mouth was wired shut. And then I had no feeling to my right leg with a lot of injuries. They eventually got it working. And it was a very difficult um, transition in life, to say the least. All right. I need to read a few other passages. Is that all right? Yes. Okay. So the next few days are a painful, terrifying blur. One minute I would be sweating, the next freezing. I was either in pain or I was passed out. In the blink of an eye, I had gone from a fearless, strong soldier fighting a war to feeling like a helpless child. I had no idea how to react to where I was or what was happening to me. One minute I was angry and the next I was overcome with emotion and crying. I cried a lot. I've never been so scared. My fear was amplified each time I was taken out of that stiflingly small hospital room because every time they came to get me, I was wheeled into another painful surgery. I was heavily medicated, but that only took the edge off the pain and added to my confusion. I still didn't really know what was going on or what happened to me. And now I was in and out of consciousness. So I didn't get a firm grasp on reality. It was terrifying. You know, and I like to think I'm a pretty brave person, but no, it's like everything came down. And yeah, there was also, there was medication. I remember one time as they were rolling me out of the room to go to another surgery. And again, like you can only take so much pain meds that'll knock you out and then you're just awake. I was awake during several surgeries that they were just like, well, we just got to do it. And I remember them rolling me out and me grabbing my mom's arm and crying like a child. Like, don't let them take me. Don't let them take me. Like I, I was terrified. It was like such a foreign place. Combat was way less scarier. You know, the goal there was don't die. You know what I mean? Then here I was, I felt helpless, didn't know what was going on, constant pain and these surgeries. And yeah, 
I don't ever want to go back to that. Your recovery and the following years had a lot of ups and downs. First of all, your dad was insistent that you get off the pain medication. Yes. Well, first of all, he's not a doctor, so we probably shouldn't have taken medical advice from him, but he was right though. Uh, I should have went to my doctor and told them I wanted to come off and let them wean me off. But instead I decided you're right. I should come off all this pain medicine. And I just quit taking everything. I was taking handfuls of stuff. And then after this man told me I should come off the pain meds, you know, like a day or so later, we're sharing a room, he and I, you know, just like the hospital's walking distance. And we have like the Fisher house. I was in the Malone house, which doesn't exist anymore because it was at the old Walter Reed, but we were sharing a room when I was finally not inpatient. And I'd quit this pain medicine and all this medication. And I'll never forget him sleeping and snoring loudly. And I am unable to sleep. I'm having withdrawals. I'm shaking. I'm seeing tracers. I'm emotional. I'm at the, I'm sitting at the end of my bed crying. And I remember I'd look over at his bed and he's sleeping sound asleep snoring. And I'm like, what is happening? You know what I mean? It was crazy. Um, then I didn't sleep for like three days. And I went to the doctor because I had an appointment and he's talking about refilling my prescription. I was like, no, I've already, I quit all that. He's like, what? No, you're on, like I was on methadone, all this stuff. He's like, you can't just quit. And he's checking my blood pressure, everything. I said, well, I haven't slept in three days. I said, but I'm really tired. I'm pretty sure I'm, when I leave here, I'm going to go back to sleep. And he wrote me, he said, I'll wean you off. He wrote me a prescription. I never filled it. I went to bed. It worked out for me. But the reason I say that I shouldn't have taken the advice like he was a doctor, that could have gone in a completely different direction. I never encourage somebody to just stop what they're doing cold turkey, because if you're on a lot of medication, your body can react in a negative way. Mine was a lot of like, I couldn't sleep and it was a lot of just weird stuff going on, but thankfully it didn't, it could have put me in a worse place. But the fact that I came off of it did help me start to move forward. That's when things started to become more clear of what was going on. And I was able to start working on what's next. It takes you a couple of times to learn a lesson because you mentioned you were reckless. You could have left it out in the book about you got behind the wheel when you shouldn't have. Yeah. More than once. And you would go in this cycle where you would say, okay, I'm going to be a better man. I'm not going to do this again. So then you go up and then you come back down and do it again. Nope. You went to jail for 10 days. Mm -hmm. and you said, this is it. I can't do this anymore. It's not going to happen again. And then you went back down again. Nope. You know, I always tell people that, you know, that have seen that my life is not what it was before they've asked, you know, what finally made that happen. And I always tell them life is not a movie. It doesn't just fix, but the constant I had in my life that is to this day, my motivation are my three children and a fourth that's on the way. Dude. Oh, congratulations. Yes. I have to keep that motivation going. So I have to keep <laughs> making them. <laughs> that's my exciting. Kids are, my kids are my motivation. I knew that I had to make a change because I was setting the example for my children. And you can tell your children whatever you want to your blue in the face. They learn from who you are. They learn from our actions, the things we do. They're paying attention. They're always watching. They're always paying attention. And we have to be aware of that. And so I knew I had to make a change. Now, what's been great about the mistakes I made and the struggles I've gone through, I've gone through, my children have seen it and they've seen me come out of it. And they've also, wasn't too long ago, uh, my son had said, said something to my wife. I'd went somewhere and she said, oh, he had a doctor's appointment. He goes, oh, is everything okay? She goes, oh yeah. No, she goes, it was a mental health appointment. And then he was like, oh, is he okay? And my wife was like, no, actually he's fine. This is just something you do. Your dad takes care of himself, both physically and mentally. And I have set the course for my children who are happy to go to talk to a counselor 
to do therapy because when it comes to health and fitness, it's not just about what you eat and what gym you work out at. If you're not taking care of this, well, then you're wasting your time because this will throw everything off, which is the same thing that was happening with my ups and downs. It wasn't until I got control of this that things started to smooth out. And it took wanting to be a better father to help me get to that place. I think a really pivotal part in the book is when you talk about Christmas Eve and you're out drinking, you come home and you throw up. I went out drinking and, you know, here it was, I was, I had one failed marriage rushed into a second and now I'm at three kids and I went, I was like, hey, get the kids ready for bed. I'll be back and we can put out Christmas. And I went out drinking and I came home real late, threw up outside. And I remember thinking, do not screw up Christmas for the kids. Cause it's like, who wants to be that person? I went in, I put everything out, but then I fell asleep on the couch. The kids were really young. That's a memory I hope they do not have uh, because that's not something you want, you know? And I think there's a lot of parents who have been in that situation, but you know what? The reason I talk about it in the book, like you said, I, I share a lot in the book, those ups and downs. And the reason I did it was for those who are experiencing that or have experienced that, know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You know what? It doesn't happen now. And I have a great relationship with my children. Of course, this is their first day back to school. Down here, they summer starts a little earlier. Now they today's their first day. And we got them up, had breakfast, and they went to school. And I have a great relationship with them now. It wasn't what it should have been a long time ago. You don't, you want to be a good parent all the time, but to anybody out there that's listening, we make mistakes. We're only human, but a good parent learns from their mistake and then improves and doesn't keep that cycle because we don't want that cycle to continue with our children. I don't want my children to go down that road, to have something traumatic happen and then just give up because that was the position I was in. I'd given up and it was my children and not wanting to ruin Christmas or anything else in their lives that I was like, I got to do something. For you, it wasn't one central event that happened. It was a culmination of events. I'm where a slow you finally, learner. I'm a slow learner. <laughs> most of us are, where you finally decided, this is it. I'm not going back. Yes. The biggest moment for me was realizing what it was doing to the children as they were growing up and what example I was setting for them. You know, so now was like I said, them seeing me get help and then take care of myself and now living a great, healthy life is the best example I could give them. And I hope that they they learn from it and always take care of themselves in the same sense, because life isn't easy. Hopefully they don't grow up and ever miss, you know, end up losing their limbs, <laughs> but things happen. You know, you've had things in your life. We've all had things in our lives happen. There's no way you can't weigh it up. Just you can't say, well, it's not as bad as that person's or it's worse than that. No, our lives are problems and it can be hard. And it isn't unless you're able to take care of yourself mentally and physically that anything good can come out of it. I want to mention, let's see, maybe five things and see what comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. This is like a game. McDonald's. McDonald's. Uh, look, my stomach just made a weird, <laughs> you do remember, <laughs> you do remember McDonald's in your book, don't you? Yes. I used to eat it all the time. It was like when I first, cause my mouth was wired shut Yeah. and, uh, when it finally got the, everything off and I could eat, I first thing I ate was a McDonald's cheeseburger. Cause I could barely open my mouth and I ate it and I was like, Oh man. So I'd go. And then it got to where it was all I was eating, double quarter pounders with cheese. I would put the fries on the burger. Oh, it was so good. But if I were to eat that today, ugh, I'd be in the bathroom for the rest of the day. <laughs> well, I hate to mention this next one because it's pretty much the same. <laughs> and that is Cracker Barrel. I still eat Cracker Barrel. Um, <laughs> I just, I'll eat from their healthier menu. You know what I mean? I, I'll Do they have a healthier menu? Well, you know, it's funny. They used to have turkey bacon. Then nobody was buying it. So they did with it, did away with it. Well, then they decided to offer some healthier options. They do. Like, I'll get eggs. Apparently, it was in the news the other day. They decided to offer some healthier options. 
and people got up in arms. Well, Noah, what's the point of going to Cracker Barrel if you're going to eat healthy? I know. If you're not eating the, the biscuits and gravy, you're, <laughs> you're in the wrong place. <laughs> All right. What about ADD? Oh, that is me to a T. Like I am, if you look up the definition of it, everything from personality to struggles I've had in life to advantages in life, in combat, uh, those with ADD, we're used to having so much going on and we can't concentrate that when things are going crazy, guess who concentrates well? We do. And they have studies have shown that uh, men and women who have ADD, ADHD, and get out and have traumatic injuries, they recover better. I don't know why, you know, I haven't looked more into it, but there have been studies that shown that there, there's not a disadvantage really to ADD except for the school system. Well, they do. You want everyone to kind of just sit down, listen, what's well, hard for us. You know what I mean? We're distracted. We can't think. Uh, and that's, I have learned to make it work for me, not against me. You scored really high on that test. Oh yeah, well, you're talking about it in the book. Yes, I, yeah. I bring that up. So you excelled go, at that task. Oh yeah, the doctor was like, when I came back, he was like, Noah, I knew when I met you, you had ADD, but I had no idea how bad it was. Yeah, they, a doctor tested me, and it was off the charts. Um, but anytime I've tried medication, I, I don't really care for it. Uh, and that medication would have been good if I were in school you know, always been physical, always been active, had jobs around the manual labor scene. And, or if you're somebody who's creative with ADD, like you don't want to shut that down with medication. So I tried it in the past, but never cared for it. And so, like I said, like now I've learned how to make it work for me, not against me. And that's with everything, not just ADD, but my injury and everything, you know, you can either let something hold you back or you can figure out how to say, this isn't going to stop me. And you know what? I'm actually going to use it to my advantage and figure out what I can do with this. Because most people with ADD, yeah, we're high strong. We talk a lot. We get distracted. But we're very hands-on and we're very creative. And so there is something good that comes from it. What about The Notebook? Oh, great movie. Uh <laughs> What's funny is to I'll meet people and be like, I love the notebook. You're like, I was like, you're, you're a bird. I'm a bird. They're like, what? You know, from the movie, it was. When I watched that movie, I watched it by myself. I watched it. And it's actually, it's in the book. I think it played perfectly with what was happening at the time. Here it is. I had this marriage that was falling apart. My oldest son was a baby. And I was watching that movie about love, finding love. And I was in a marriage that had none of that. I think it was that moment where it was like, you realize, you know, it's unfortunate to end up in a bad marriage, but there ain't no need in staying in it. You know what I mean? You have to get out. Cause like, here it is, I'm 40 years old now and about to have another child. And it took me a long time to find this amazing woman that I'm with now. I was young when I got married the first time. And, and that, that movie though, I will admit. You cried. Oh, yeah. Well, I was getting there, Tina. Hold on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I uh, interrupted oh, your look, story. Here's the I thing, ruined though. it. No, but here's the thing. Every movie like that has a sad scene. So I was prepared. You know what I mean? I had my walls up. I'm holding my son. He's rocking him. We're watching the movie. Well, I thought I'd pass the sad part. We're wrapping the movie up. Mm. I let my guard down. And then... I'm not even going to ruin the movie for anybody. If you haven't seen it, it's ridiculous. That movie's been out for a long time. But there is another part that happens. I had to put the baby down into his little bouncy seat and walk out of the room. I was like, this boy is too young to see his dad crying like this. <laughs> I love that you own it, though, Noah. Hey, it was that was a very touching movie. I love watching movies. I, ever seen the movie Wonder? Yes. Yes. I own it. I own it. Whew. I love it. Let's talk about your comeback. That well, was it, kind of accidental, right? Through social media, you started getting attention because you started doing these races. races. Yeah. First, it turned into fit. First, it was changing the way I was eating, joining a gym, figuring out how to work out, and then running the races, getting attention, and 
then, yeah, social media, I started gaining a following and then ended up on the cover of Men's Health. They called me the ultimate guy. It's like, well, it doesn't get no better than this. Then I end up on Ellen and then all these shows wanted me. Survivor called me. I was like, that'd be amazing. But what people don't realize is, and I didn't know this, when you are on the show and you get voted off, you, you stay, stay with the crew. Yeah. There's no contact back home till the show is done. And I was like, no, my kids are more important. You know, this, I'm trying to be the best father I can be. So I was like, nope. Another show called, had to turn it down. Dancing with the Stars called. And I was like, I've heard of your show. I've never seen it. And they're like, do you have any dancing experience? I'm like, no. You know, and then I, they're like, well, if you'll do our show, we'll put you in a house in LA for the duration of the time you're here. And I was like, thanks for no things. But I have three kids here in Alabama more important than television show without hesitation dina katz executive producer said that's okay we'll send the dancer to you you'll rehearse in alabama and fly back and forth to la for the live show i was like oh crap i guess i'll do it and i didn't think i'd last long i didn't know i'd end up doing all 10 weeks coming in third but we traveled constantly because my kids were a priority and i think that in the long run and continuing to this day with my business, my children, my family are first. And yeah, sometimes you miss out on some things, but I think the things I've missed out on, I didn't really need. They weren't going to benefit me in the long run because what has, has happened is people know that I love my family and that if I tell you something, that's what it is. And people appreciate that. You know, there's that saying, a good reputation will follow you, but a bad reputation will beat you there has two sides to it one don't be a bad person because people are going to find out about it and two if you're a good person hey that's going to follow you through life i'm not saying i'm an amazing person i put my children first and i think that businesses i've worked with they appreciate that and that's why they've worked with me so it, it has benefited dancing with the stars was hard very hard physically i would think even for someone who is in shape it is and in fact, one of the things that you mentioned, you lost a tooth. <laughs> yes, got kicked Your tooth in the mouth, got knocked tooth. out. And you were so sore and in so much pain at one point, you thought, this is the last one that I'm going to do. I'm done after this. I can't keep yeah, I hurt my wrist because a lot of these male dancers, they know how to do lifts with minimal effort. I didn't know how. So I was like manhandling, like she'd flip upside down and then I was rotating just her wrist, did it all week rehearsing it. It wasn't until another male dancer saw me doing it. He was like, no, 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 don't do that. I was getting cortisone shots, you know, all these different things. Like my wrist was real bad. It became extremely difficult. The only advantage I had on Dancing with the Stars, the only advantage, because I don't know how to dance. Well, there's two advantages. One of the advantages was and I had a, a couple of producers pull me aside and tell me this. It was going to like week eight or nine, right towards the end. And they're like, Noah, everyone's tired except for you. And I was like, no, I'm tired. I was like, but this is, it's only been like nine weeks. I'm used to deployments that are a year long. You know what I mean? You just keep going and going and going. And so that was an advantage I had. The second advantage was I looked great shirtless. So a lot of people <laughs> get voting for me. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. You have ran a lot of races with many different organizations. One organization I want to mention because I have spoken with a lot of them. And so I have an affinity for this organization. You mentioned the gas mask. And Operation that is Enduring Operation Enduring Warrior, OEW. The first race that I went to I'm in Utah and I went to a small town called Gunnison. It's called the Gunnison Gut Check. They have OEW honorees there. Matthew Bradford, I don't know if you know who that is. The name sounds familiar. He Very is familiar. no legs, no vision, no problem. He lost both his legs. He's a Marine and he is blind. Hmm. But uh, what an amazing organization. And I went down there and they had an honoree. And as I was leaving that day, because of course, those honorees will finish last because they have the prosthetics and they can't do these ruck races as fast. As I was leaving that day, I'll never forget it, Noah, and it tears me up every single time because it's kind of a desert landscape where Gunnison is. And off in the distance, 
I could see on these rolling desert hills, this man running with a, one leg in his prosthetic and beside him, helping him every step of the way are two gas mask people. Mm -hmm. For people that are, you know, that are, are unfamiliar with Operation During Warrior, they're probably wondering what's the deal with the gas mask? Well, the backstory where it originated was uh, a gentleman that wanted to wear that. It was in honor of, because he, he did a marathon in a gas mask. And yeah. interviewed, they asked him, why would you do that? Like it cuts off 20% of your oxygen. So it's a lot more difficult. And he said, these men and women have to go their entire lives, you know, missing limbs, uh, spinal cord injuries, severe burns, whatever it is. He says, I can be uncomfortable for a couple of hours. And it just grew from there. And then they had a whole team of able-bodied veterans that were wearing the gas mask that would run. And then they would honor a guest. Well, they reached out to me because I was already running races. And eventually it came down to me saying, hey, I appreciate the offer, but I don't need a trip. Find someone else. And then he responded and said, you want to run the race? Because at this point, injured people weren't running on the team. And I said, yes, why else? I wouldn't do it any other way. So we did the Bataan Memorial Death March. And that was the first event where all of us in our gas mask and there was someone out there with an injury. And I had cut the pants leg off because I wanted to be able to take my leg off and get the sweat out and get it back on. And we did it with 55 pounds on our back, gas mask, did the entire Bataan Memorial Death March, and it gained a lot of attention. And then we started realizing and talking about it that we need more injured guys running the events and everything changed. And that's when OEW Operation During Warrior grew from. And now you have men and women that, yeah, you can be supporters of the team and be out there on the course with us, but you have to earn a spot to be wearing the gas mask. It's hard. And it is because you know what? The reason there is a tough indoctrination to join to be to wear the mask is because if I'm out on the course missing an arm and a leg and you have to help me, well, you have to help me while also wearing your mask and you have to be extremely physically and mentally strong to deal with your own stuff and the stuff of this injured veteran. It's a tough course to put these men and women through to earn a spot wearing the mask. And it's a really great organization because it's not just about the races. You're taking guys and gals that are used to a team environment and need something to push them, to give them a reason to start doing more. And once you're part of a team, well, then you have that ability to um, not just be part of the team, but to take care of yourself, to not overeat, drink too much, whatever it is, uh, because the whole team is counting on you. So I think it's really good. A lot of us veterans to get part of. The races are great, but I think the core part of OEW is anytime that you need that help, Anytime you need to talk to someone on the phone, day or night, there is someone that will talk to you. And many of the people that I've spoken to have said that they have been on the phone speaking with somebody, trying to pull them up for hours. So that person will stay as long as needed. Yeah. And I think that is absolutely phenomenal. Noah, you are a veteran. What do we need to do to help our veterans transition to civilian life better. What do we need to do to help them with this PTSD that so many of you grapple with because you have seen things, you have done things, you have been part of something that most people have no clue. What can we do better? Well, I mean, obviously we could go through a whole list and debate different things and have different opinions of what would work, what wouldn't work. My opinion of something the first thing that crosses my mind as you're saying that is we need to change the way we talk about our veterans how they're portrayed you know because if you take a group of people and you tell them directly or indirectly that they are a certain way well then they'll start acting upon it all we ever talk about with veterans is they're suicidal their ptsd whatever well, 
how does that help? If somebody like me gets injured or gets out of the military, well, I'm convinced, well, this is who we are. No, we're not. Because you know what? You know how, many, how many CEOs came out of Vietnam? You know what I mean? You got all these people that come out of the military and are successful. Not saying we don't need to help all the others. This is just one of the things that I'm suggesting should happen. You raise the bar and let these veterans know that they are important. The time they spent in the military made them better people. And to use that knowledge, even if you go into a job that is separate from the one you had, you know how to be a leader. You know how to take care of things, how to be on time, how to dress appropriately, whatever it is, use that advantage. You are successful. Most people cannot join, will not join the military. So if we're going to take this 1% of the population, they need to be reminded that they are actually incredible people. And it's not by babying them. It's just by saying, you got it. And not only does that support us, but, you know, we always are talking about jobs for veterans. Well, you can't talk about how screwed up we are and in the same breath say, oh, we also need to hire them. Well, hey, guess what? <laughs> As someone that has his own business, you ain't tempting me to hire somebody if I'm convinced they're a little crazy. And I say that because we're not crazy. We're not. Yes, we've had stories. You know what? Most of our issues have nothing to do with the military. You know what I mean? The military is a safe haven for a lot of people to get out of a bad situation. So you're carrying all that baggage with you. And then only a small percent of the military even sees combat. So let's forget talking about combat screwing people up because you have all these men and women that don't see combat, but have issues, not saying they should be overlooked. No. Hey, how about you take advantage of the fact that you have free health care to go to the VA, to get the mental health, to get taken care of. And if any veteran says, well, the VA this, the VA that, well, if you have a problem with the VA, the only way you're going to make the VA better is being involved and being vocal, not complaining, but being there involved, pointing out when something's wrong, having a solution, because Vietnam veterans fought really hard to get the VA to where it is today. And it would be a disservice for my generation not to be involved with the VA because there's going to be generations after us that are going to need that service. And so that needs to be a priority that we are involved in the VA. But going back to the original thing we were talking about, we have to change the way veterans are talked about. You know what I mean? They need to be reminded that they are successful. Now, one of the biggest things, the phrase I coined and I, I hope this is in the book. So I hope you heard it. I'm going to say it anyway. There's this whole Married with Children, amazing TV show from the 90s. Al Bundy, if, if you, to the younger people watching this, go back and watch it. But Al Bundy is this miserable man. A shoe salesman. Yep. He's a shoe salesman, miserable, you know, miserable with his wife, his kids. The only time he gets excited is when he talks about scoring four touchdowns in a single football game in high school. He lived, that man lives in the past. That's why he's miserable in the present. You have to, look, I am proud of my military service. I've worn that uniform, that American flag patch on my arm. I deployed to combat and I loved it. You know what? That was a chapter in my life. I am several chapters past it. And I'm always planning for the next thing. I am actually an apprentice right now under an auctioneer. I'm going to auctioneering school to be an auctioneer. Is that, am I quitting everything else? No. But you know what? I'm preparing for when I'm not in the public eye and I've got to keep working. So I'm doing things to set that up. And that's what everyone should be doing in life. You're always looking for what's next in life, looking forward. And I think that's where a lot of veterans struggle is when they get out of the military, they lose their direction in life. Every book talks about you find your why or whatever it is. That is real. The reason everybody writes about the same crap over and over again is because it's true. Do you know who else has a high suicide rate? NFL football players. Because when they get out, it doesn't matter how much money you made. None of that matters. If you have no direction in life, you're lost. And so what I think, one, is we need to raise the bar and how we discuss and talk about our veterans. And then two, our veterans need to be proud of their, their service, but to move forward. Life is chapters. Go to the next chapter. Go to the next chapter. Can you speak any auctioneer language? I'm still learning. 
Like, you know, one of the things is, you like, yeah, I'm still learning, you know, because it's a lot of, you know, who to give me the, you know, all that, you know, then you got the numbers, the two and a half, five, seven and a half, 10, 12 and a half, 15, seven and a half, 20, like all these, these halves and things like that. It's really interesting to learn. But I kept finding myself at events where they wanted to randomly auction stuff off. They're like, no, will you do it? After I, I was with a friend of mine, he had a concert, a benefit concert, and I sold some stuff. Then I came home and called my buddy who's an auctioneer. And I said, I'm in. He told me for years I should be one. I said, let's do it. Does that take a long time to learn? Is it just calm? You just learn how to speak faster, faster, faster? Well, so you do, you get better at it. But now here's the thing to keep in mind. Because a lot of times when you think of auctioneers, now you got auctioneers who sell cattle. They're selling it real fast. Well, the buyers are professional buyers. These people are used to going auctions. They know what he's saying. They can keep up with him. Car salesman, same thing. I want to be a benefit auctioneer. Okay. So if you go to a fundraiser, then they're like, hey, we're going to have an auctioneer. Well, guess what? That auctioneer may do a little fast talking just to be funny, but you don't know how to listen to it. So the auctioneer in that situation has to know numbers, keep up with everything, and have fun with the crowd. Me, I love working a crowd. So it's perfect. But then also- I never would have guessed. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm a very quiet person. But <laughs> um, also an auctioneer, and that world has transitioned. That is fun to that stuff, but a lot of it is online. And, you know, these are people that, you know, you may have farmer passes away. Well, his widowed wife has to figure out what to do with everything or that not just farmers, but in general, working with these auctioneers, I'm actually really impressed with what they do. And I'm excited to just add this to my list of accomplishments. Your repertoire. Yeah, yeah. I I was thinking that word, but I was like, I'll mess that up. (laughs) What does living with no excuses mean to you? The title of your book. It means there's no excuse not to take care of yourself and your family. And that doesn't mean like the old school, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. No, take care of yourself means, hey, guess what? If I have heart problems, I am not a certified cardiologist. Neither is anyone else in this house. So I go see a doctor. I take care of this and everything else. You know what I mean? When people have their checkups, their doctor, if you don't have a mental health checkup, well, then you're not taking care of yourself. That's what living with no excuses. It means living without those excuses not to live a fulfilling life. Towards the end of your book, and I hope you'll excuse me because I can't remember what page it is or the exact words, but it was akin to someone asking you, what would you do different if you could go back? And surprisingly, Uh, you didn't say your injuries. You know that? I'm kidding. I made that up. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I'm looking at, I know I have it written somewhere, but I can't find it right now. But surprisingly, you did not say that you would change your traumatic injuries. Yeah. No, I I, I remember that it was a friend of mine because I said a couple of things. I said, one, I'm really good luck. Like my entire life, they looked at my arm and my leg. And that was another time that I'd been like, if I could change anything, I talked about a few things. They're like, you wouldn't change the fact that you lost arm and leg and no, the answer is no. I would, I love to have my arm and leg back. Yes. You know, but um, in reality it's gone and that's what it is. And if I hadn't have been injured, if I hadn't gone through my depression and my struggles, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be the father I am today. I wouldn't be the husband I am today. Anything who I am, just like you are, just like everyone else, who we are today is because of all the experiences we've had in our life, good and bad. And I love the life I have. Tell me what you are doing to support the veteran community today. I try to stay as active as I can. And I'm on the board of directors for an organization that works with veterans, uh, Sheepdog Impact Assistance. They do a lot with uh, veterans and first responders. We don't think about it, but first responders are such a smaller group that they don't get the attention that veterans do, you know, not just policemen, but you have firemen, you have paramedics. What I love, they have these camps that are, they call it falling forward because it's about accepting what your trauma in your life, knowing that it's there, learning from it, and then moving past it, but not ignoring that it doesn't exist. It's really incredible what they're doing. I've started a charity golf tournament. Last year was the first year. I have it again. I'm going to do it every year. And every year, I'm choosing a different organization 
to benefit. So all the money goes to last year was cheap, cheap dog impact assistance. This year is homes for our troops. They build houses for injured veterans all over the country. So Which you benefited year, from, right? Yes. Because you lost yes. your home. And so you had an organization build you a home. It was something that I struggled with for a long time. They wanted to build me a house for several years. And I was like, no, no. And then through my divorce and repoed my house, like it was an embarrassment, just a bad thing. One thing bad of another. And finally, I was like, y'all still interested? And they're like, yes. <laughs> I can really know? use that and, house now. <laughs> yeah. And then I started getting attention. I was like, oh no, let's not do it. Like they were in the process. I was like, let's give it to someone else. They're like, no, you need this house. And then actually the first night I was in this house, what was amazing was I, I was living in a, I ended up in an apartment, two bedroom apartment, all three of my kids. There was a bunk bed and a day bed in one bedroom for them. And for them all to have their own bedroom. But then more importantly was the first night I took a shower because look, if you ever tried taking a shower, standing on one leg, like I never had accessible homes and I'd fallen several times in the shower. And I'm not afraid to admit you fall enough times in the shower you're not quick to get in one. You know what I mean? I wouldn't hesitate to just stick my head in and wash what I needed to wash. You smell, yeah, it's like, good. I can wait another yeah, day. I can go another day. I'm fine. <laughs> um, but this house showered two, three times a day whenever I need to, you know what I mean? Because it's easy and I needed that. And it was so interesting when I tried to stop them from building the house and they laughed and said, you need this house, trust us. And then it became really good because serious races, I can injure my stump. The other day I was in my wheelchair around the house and this house is completely accessible with a wheelchair. And that was not a thing I could have done in the past. So sometimes I think one of the hardest things to do is to let go of your ego and allow people to help you. Yes. Oh, when the house was built, it was tough. The key ceremony was hard. And they told me, they said, you're like every one of our other veterans. <laughs> you don't do well accepting it. You know what I mean? But then when we get in, we're like, oh my God, this, we needed this, but it's really hard. And I told them that I'm going to pay them back by over the years, getting as much money benefited to them as I can. I think that your book is great for people to read because looking at where you are now, yes, you don't have an arm, you don't have a leg, but you're successful. You are helping others. But that is not where you always were. And it was a long journey to get you to where you are. I think this book is great for anybody who is struggling with that. Because where you are now does not mean that's where you have to be tomorrow. Yes. So this is just not, everybody, this is a plug for Noah's book, Living With No Excuses. This is not just for military, for veterans. This is for anyone who is struggling with depression, with PTSD, whatever form it is, whatever you've gone through in your life, that repeated failures does not mean ultimate failure. Yeah. No, in fact, having failures just means that you're trying and if you're trying, then you're succeeding. Write that one down. That was that good. was good. You better write that down before you forget. Hurry before your ADD switches and you forget about what we were just. I've talking already about. forgot it all. There are times like I've been I've shot videos for like commercials or something or whatever, and I'll say something amazing. They're like, "Oh, let's do that again." I'm like, "I have no idea what I just. I can't even repeat it." Oh, that is too funny. Where do people go online to see what Noah is doing? So I have uh, noahgalloway.com is probably the easiest way. From there, you can follow the links to my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, and there's a link to my golf tournament. If anybody is in Alabama, central center of Alabama, Timberline and Clearbore, if you just want to donate, money's going to Homes for Our Troops this year. If people have anything they want to donate for an auction or a prize or sponsor a whole, they can do that. It's noexcusesgolf.com or noahgalloway.com will send you right to it. September 16th. September 16th. The, uh, that's either the second or third weekend of September. And we decided it's going to be that same time every year. So on a Friday, we're, we, you know, there's the option of doing a Friday or a Monday. We chose Friday. So people that are coming, because we have a lot of people that come in from out of town that uh, will play and hang around you know, over the weekend. So we had the best time last year. I hope 
anybody that listens to this that is able to come or if they ever want to come in the future, Tina, you should come. Like we had a blast last year. The volunteers were so fun that it kept everyone upbeat the entire time. That sounds amazing. That really sounds amazing. Noah, you have many accomplishments. I already know your answer to this. I know I know your answer, but I'm going to let you tell me of all your accomplishments, what is the accomplishment that you consider the greatest? Oh, obviously uh, being a father in my children. I knew it. How smart am yeah. I? I knew you I were going to say that. I'm you a know, mind it, reader. It, it sounds so corny, but it's so true. Like that is where my, my head, my heart are all the time, you know, and I have an incredible wife and we've got this incredible home that uh, I have custody of all my children. And it's just this amazing environment. We have this baby, a little boy due November 5th. When we got married, she'd never been married, never had kids. And we weren't planning on it at first, but then we started talking and she's like, what if I wanted to? And I said, you know, I love my children and I would have more. I so, love hearing that because in your book at the end, oh, I know that yeah, wasn't even I, anything you considered. You were done. I was done. I had to have a 12 year vasectomy reversed. Like when I went, to I didn't the doctor, know you were that done. Yeah. Like the doctor, when I told the doctor, I know that it's probably not, he says, I'm glad you know that because the probability is really low and uh, it happened. May I ask when you met your wife? Because unfortunately in your book, yeah, she was. You were so, done with your third relationship. You were alone. I was thinking maybe you were. St- I mean, you weren't alone because you have your children. But I'm yeah. happy that you found someone. How long after this book did you meet your wife? Well, actually, I met her around the time the book came out. In fact, her mom bought her a copy of the book. Um, she's a yoga instructor, hosts yoga retreats, is very wanted in the yoga world, has set up studios. That's why I'd met her in New York. Her mom lives in New York and she was on her way to LA to take over some studios there to build them up. And we met and connected. She was interested in working with veterans and their families with yoga. And we started talking and then we stayed in contact uh, while she was in LA. And when I was in LA, I'd see her she'd come to Alabama and see me. And then it got more serious going into 2019. I started feeling like I needed to settle down. I was not a good husband back in the day. You know, those were, and I've told my children, I'm like, don't rush into relationships, you know, find what you want. And I did this time around, I stayed single for a long time. And uh, then going in end of 2019, I knew I with work, I wanted to slow down. I didn't know how I was going to do that. All of 2020 was already booked out uh, and I wanted more and her and I started talking more Then COVID happened. Everything shut down after the kids being here for two months straight, they finally went to their moms and I had told her when they go to their moms, why don't you come to Alabama and see me? And then while she was here, I said, let's go pack your stuff in LA. You're moving here. And then we did. And then we got married and then now we have a baby on the way. What a fun holiday gift for everyone. Yes. That is perfect. Also, in the end of your book, you talk about America, about how you're not bitter, Mm. about your injuries, what happened. So I need to ask you, what does America mean to you? You know, America to me is a family and we have our problems. We have our disagreements. We have those of us in our family that go to the extreme when they get mad. And that's unfortunate. Uh, But I look at it like I have three sisters and we don't always agree. Politics, religion, or just anything in dinner. It doesn't matter. You know, we disagree, but we work hard to keep that relationship that we can be different as a country. We go through our ups and downs and it's always going to happen. And I think that we're about to go into a transition of time where people are going to want more happiness and more love and less arguing, less fighting on both sides. And I I hope that's about to happen because that's what we need. And I think 
that we should. We need to come together. I think people need to step back and realize, hey, you know what? There are people that in this country that are different than us and may have a different experience than us. Maybe we should listen to what they have to say. That's not even picking a side. You can choose that from any side, whatever it is. And I think that as a country, we have to pull together and it starts individually with our own self, our own family and what we like. My children, soon to be four, they know to take care of themselves mentally and physically, eat healthy, take care of your neighbor, be there, support one another. You know, there's all these things that start there and I'm raising these children that love their country. One that I'm really hoping ends up in the military within the next year or so after graduates high school. Is he that old? How old yes, yes, my <laughs> oldest will be 18 in January. I'm looking at these pictures of him. He's a little boy, Noah. Yes, yes, they've all grown up since then. He's expressed interest in the military. We're actually looking at the Coast Guard, which oh. I'm like, what at night? Like, that's a hidden jewel of because he loves the beach he loves the fish i'm like won't you get a job that puts you there and then run around on a boat and do drug bust <laughs> that sounds absolutely amazing yeah and i tell you know i tell my children like i've had people ask me considering my injury how i feel about my children going to the military well you know what i loved my time in the military and i think it was good for me if any of my kids want to go in great if they don't i'm not going to push them but here's the thing is of all the branches of the military, there's a lot of jobs. You're not going to lose an arm or leg because of. Still do your part. And then in 20 years, you can retire. But I always tell if someone's listening to this that's considering going to the military, it's the same thing I'm telling my children. If you decide to go in, choose a job you want to do. Do not let a recruiter tell you you can change it. And choose a job that if you only do four years and get out, when you get out, are you going to be four years ahead or four years behind? Because too often people join the military, if they get out, well, what they did for the last four years is nothing they want to do or transitions into what they want to be as a civilian. So you have to think about that. And so that's what I'm hoping to encourage my children. If they want to go in the military, that's, hey, I'm all for that. If they don't, I'm all for that. But let's, I'm always with them on let's making a plan for the future. Well, Noah, this has been an absolute joy. I want you to know that to speak with you for the last hour. You are phenomenal. You have inspired me and it was a very humbling experience. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Tina. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.